how you enjoy my labyrinth. It's a piece of cake. Oh, really? Then how about upping the stakes, hmm? It's not fair! You say that so often. I wonder what your basis for comparison is. Hey, cassettes, and welcome back to the Black Case Diaries. Hello. Hey. Oh, are you tired of it? Yeah, we've been, we've missed you all <laughs> week. Okay, so we have missed you welcome guys. Back. It's been a whole week. Yes. <laughs> all right. Well, we're three old friends learning everything we can about movies and TV, and hopefully teaching you in the process. I'm Marcy. I'm Robin. And I'm Adam. Hey. <laughs> hey. The charismatic one. Yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> I don't know. Wow. Look, I just try to. I'm look. so hurt. I don't know what to say. I try. I try. <laughs> I'm sorry. We're all very charismatic on this show. Oh, no, no. It's fine, Adam. Go continue. What were you going to say? I was going to say, I just try to make the beginnings interesting. Yeah. All right. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say, you guys are the buddy cops. Ah. Uh, okay. But then I don't know what that makes me really because it's yeah. charismatic one doesn't fit. Are you the person we picked up in the car? You're yeah. The criminal? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I like that. You're the criminal. You're the criminal with a heart of gold that yeah. helps us solve the crime <laughs> ultimately yeah. at the end. Well, let's get back to the episode now. <laughs> when Jim Henson got the green light for the Muppet movie, he started quietly working on another film. It was a groundbreaking movie that ambitiously used only puppets as its main actors. He collaborated with artist Brian Froud, and together they developed an entire fantasy world. After six years of work, that film, The Dark Crystal, made it to the big screen. After its premiere, Jim Henson, being the workaholic that he was, already wanted to jump back in to make another film. He contacted Brian Froud, who came up with the idea of Goblins. Man, it's like, mm. oh, that, oh, it's released? All right, let's get to work. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of funny because I kind of understand yeah, I mean, that that's feeling. Creators, that's just what you have to do. Yeah, you just keep coming up with things you want to do. Well, Jim Henson loved the idea, and he told Froud that he wanted there to be humans in this film. Suddenly, Froud imagined a baby surrounded by goblins. He painted some conceptual art, and the idea for Labyrinth was born. So Jim Henson thought that the big problem with the Dark Crystal was that there were no humans in it. And so he thought that adding humans to this movie would make this one better. I don't think that's the problem with the Dark Crystal. I no. think the Dark Crystal's a masterpiece. Yes. So Aha, no problems. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but it, I wonder if it had anything to do with him having worked so long on the Muppets being a mixture of puppets and humans that he just couldn't shake that yeah you know yeah oh, it doesn't feel right because mm -hmm. there's no people yeah because he's so used to it you know yeah labyrinth was a seamless combination of the muppets and the deep fantasy of the dark crystal for jim henson it was a deeply personal story of which he was immensely proud it followed the journey of sarah an adolescent girl that has lost her baby brother to jareth the goblin king it's also a story of self-discovery, of leaving childhood behind and heading into the wild and winding world of the unfamiliar. With beautiful sets peppered with otherworldly creations, Labyrinth created a unique physical world that still enchants audiences to this day. So as we continue Jim Henson June, let's follow the Goblin King into 
the labyrinth. <laughs> oh my goodness, what a bizarre movie. Pure, imaginative, yeah, just no holds barred, crazy. Like, right, <laughs> yes. And, and I mean, that's not to say that there's no structure to this movie whatsoever, mm. but anything goes in this movie. Like, all of the ideas are valid. All of the, yeah. the weird-looking creations, yes, let's do it. All of the wacky acting, do it. We're yeah. in. It's so mm-hmm. it's like this combination of such bizarre ideas, but somehow is like... It's perfect. It's, it's solid, man. Yeah. So nice. Most people, I think, saw this probably when they were younger, and I don't think I saw it until I was at least in high school, but I loved it. I love <laughs> it. It's my favorite sick day movie. Uh-huh. It's oh yeah. It's just so amazing. I don't I mean what do you even say? Like Yeah. Yeah. Ah. I saw this when I was a kid. We watched this a lot. Mm. This was one of our heavy rotation movies, and I think because my dad really liked it. Mm. So if my dad liked something, we watched it a lot. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so we watched things like this and Return to Oz and The Mask and mm-hmm. those were all movies that my dad liked. So <laughs> what not Barney Adventure seventy five. <laughs> yeah. Which I did have. Well <laughs> I did have Barney's Adventure Barney's. or whatever. Yeah, whichever one that was. There's a bunch. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I love this movie too. It's really interesting to me because I like this movie more than The Dark Crystal, actually. Mm-hmm. I, yes, I, that too. says a lot me about too. this one. Yeah, I, I do like this movie more. But I, I think that the great thing about this movie is that I love how timeless it is. Mm-hmm. I love that it's really easy to understand it mm-hmm. on a really deep level, even when you're a child. Mm-hmm. But you yes. can't, you're at an age where you can't quite put into words what's happening on screen. Mm-hmm. And, and you can't really explain the movie or explain what's going on or how you feel about it but you can feel it and it's mm-hmm. it's a very emotional movie and i love that about it and we were doing this research and i'd never heard people really put into words everything there there was thought behind absolutely every part of this movie each piece of symbolism oh, every yes. single mm-hmm. you know the lighting the set design there was you know there was a concept behind all of it and hearing about all of that was like oh my god wow you know this, <laughs> yeah. this you know this movie is i see it differently now after mm-hmm. researching it so much it's like i, I was really you know but i yeah. love it this is a great movie this could be a fun experiment opportunity where if you haven't seen this movie yet watch it right now and yeah. come back yeah pause this and watch then it. listen to what we have to say all this really cool stuff and then watch it Again. Yeah, see yeah. how you feel about it the and second time. And see if it changes. So, guys, let's talk a little bit about, before we talk about the movie, we're going to talk a little bit about the influences that really caused this movie to happen and be the way it is. In 1939, three-year-old Jim Henson saw what would become one of his favorite movies, The Wizard of Oz. Of course, the only thing he really remembered from the experience was the terrifying MGM lion. But the story impacted Jim Henson's imagination, and elements of L. Frank Baum's fantasy world would influence his own fantasy stories for years to come. As Brian Froud and Jim Henson laid out the story for the film, they intentionally pulled from several different established stories. The idea wasn't to make something that felt completely original, but instead something that the audience would recognize. This was shown, in part, in the beginning of the film, when we see Sarah's bedroom. There are pieces that inspired several parts of the story placed all around the room. 
this also plants the seed of ambiguity in the audience's mind. Is this all in Sarah's imagination, or is the labyrinth real? This is a callback to The Wizard of Oz, and another big influence, Alice in Wonderland. Very interesting. (laughs) You know, it's funny, I, (laughs) you know, just as we were saying, this is going to (laughs) happen. I, that's a piece that I didn't really consider. Because I just like, you know, fantasy world, sure, the labyrinth is real magic, you know, yeah, yeah whatever. Yeah. yeah. But maybe. Yeah, I mean, I remember being a kid and, and like when this movie started, I'd sit there with my siblings and we the camera pans over her room and mm-hmm. you get like, you get a good long time in the space without her. Mm-hmm. And you see a marble labyrinth. There's like a hoggle bookend looking yeah. thing. Yeah. The M.C. Escher stairs poster was on the wall. And I remember every time we watched this as kids, we'd point them out. There it is. There's that. There's that. (laughs) We we would point them all out. We took great pride in noticing all of the Mm -hmm. things that show up later in the movie. In The Wizard of Oz, they made this really conscious choice to have the actors in the beginning play the Tin Man and the Cowardly Lion and to make it so maybe she really was sleeping this whole Mm -hmm. time. And, you know, her dream place those people as those characters and so you don't really know if dorothy ever really did go to oz and so this has that same kind of feeling but the wheelers are real (laughs) yeah sarah falls down several rabbit holes of sorts all through the movie her trip through the labyrinth is very reminiscent of alice's adventures some of the set designs and characters were created to specifically call back to alice in wonderland like the guards that were shaped as playing cards that asked Sarah riddles. Aha. Mm. That one yes. makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> so if you remember in Alice in Wonderland, there's obviously there's a playing card imagery, chess, mm-hmm. all of that kind of stuff. But then there's lots of riddles, people rhyming, little stories yeah, and things. The Cheshire Cat's whole character. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> you know, stumbling along, finding people that will help you through your story, mm-hmm. only mm-hmm. to disappear in a couple different scenes. You know, it, yeah. it happens a lot. But beyond those two stories, the labyrinth is filled with nods to classic fairy tales and many different kinds of mythology. For example, the concept of the labyrinth came from the Greek myth of Theseus and the Minotaur. Jim Henson said, Traditionally, the labyrinth is thought of as the voyage through life. The journey through it is life, and the ultimate center is death, and rebirth is coming back out again. Wow. Interesting. It's deep. And when you think about the movie and, you know, the context of the movie, what that means. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Initially, Brian Froud suggested that there be a labyrinth in the film. He felt that it would not only be an interesting place for her character to be, but also could mirror the convolutions of her own thoughts. Jim Henson added, After all, life is kind of a labyrinth, with all its twists and turns, its straight paths, and its occasional dead ends. It's so true. Yeah. Yep. Oh, gosh, so complicated. Just give me a map, for goodness sake. (laughs) Yeah, so in the context of the movie, you think of it as Sarah going into the labyrinth Mm -hmm. as one person Mm -hmm. and coming back out as somebody completely different, which usually in coming-of-age stories, that's what happens. Mm -hmm. Pretty run-of-the-mill, you know, but in this sense, we get to see it in a really complex visual way. It's really interesting. So, like we said earlier, if you haven't seen it, I think this time you should watch before listening yeah. and then after. But, hey, if you've seen it already or maybe don't have access to it, here's a little refresher. Sarah Williams is an imaginative teenage girl. She feels life is unfair because she has to watch her baby stepbrother, Toby, when her father and stepmother go out 
on the weekends. Once wishing the goblins would take him away, she realizes she really does not want to lose him. In order to bring him home, she must solve the labyrinth and reach the Goblin King's castle. It is a journey she must take, but not alone. Along the way, she finds friends like Hoggle, Ludo, and Didymus that help her navigate through the labyrinth. So Sarah says the words, right? Yes. She says the words that she wishes that the Goblin King would come and take Toby mm-hmm. away. Mm-hmm. This is a feeling that a lot of people can relate to. The kid is screaming and he won't be quiet, right? And mm-hmm. she's just really frustrated and yeah. she's like, oh my gosh, I really wish the Goblin King would come take you away. Yeah. yeah. Right now, turns off the light. Anyway. <gasps> Dramatic. <laughs> yes, yes. We've got this cool storm going on outside and, you know, I remember the excitement watching this when I was a kid because it's like the light went out and you can see the shadows and these creatures in the background running through the room. This was the seriously the basis of the story. Goblins, fairies, they come, they steal children in the night. They often leave something and, you know, to make Mm -hmm. you think your baby is still sleeping Mm -hmm. in the bed and. They purposely subverted that. They made it look like something was in Toby's bed, but when she pulled the cover back, nothing was there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, they were really setting the audience up for a wild fairy tale. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the story goes like this Jim Henson and Brian Froud rode in silence as their limousine left a showing of the dark crystal. They stared at each other until Henson started to laugh and said, The next one will be so much better. Jim Henson's daughter was studying mythology at the time and often telling her father about the folktales she learned. He wanted to do a film inspired by these myths, but since goblins were more of Brian Froud's style, they shifted their focus to a story about goblins stealing a child. Of course, Henson would eventually make something inspired by his daughter's education in folklore, a TV series called The Storyteller. Yay. <laughs> Which yes. we've talked about before. <laughs> After the rigorous five years spent on creating the Dark Crystal, Brian Froud would have loved to take a break. Instead, he and Jim Henson started working on the Labyrinth. Although Froud's title as concept director would mean a lot of work, the second film only took three years to create, so Froud still considered it to be a vacation. <laughs> <laughs> like nice. a whole two years. For yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's what he said. He was like, I really was like a vacation. (laughs) Labyrinth's story went through many stages. As Jim Henson continued to promote his current film, he filled a notebook with ideas for his next one. One draft featured a king and a jester, and a twisted maze filled with monsters. There were concepts too dark to end up in the film, and some ideas that made their way to the final cut. For example, Jim Henson always wanted an Escher-inspired staircase sequence, which he got. All right. This reminds me of that story of Pixar guys writing all their ideas down on napkins. Oh, yeah. That famous, that infamous lunch. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, or whatever they call it, where they get on the Wally and all that stuff. Yeah, it's really kind of what it reminds me of. When you have people who are really talented and Mm -hmm. really imaginative just in one space and they come up with these million dollar ideas in in the span of like an hour, you know? Yeah. (laughs) I feel like we could do that, right? Yeah. Yeah, We just need to sit down and and spend an hour together. Yeah. That's (laughs) We'd never find the time. (laughs) 
Many critics felt that The Dark Crystal lacked the humor that audiences expected from Henson Projects. So, Jim Henson made it a priority for there to be humorous scenes in the labyrinth. Brian Froud and Jim Henson met up with writer Dennis Lee, a songwriter for the series Fraggle Rock. They pieced together a story from Henson's notes, and Froud created some art to capture the look and essence of the film. One of these paintings was called Toby and the Goblins, a beautiful image of a happy child among a crowd of monsters. Lee gathered the notes and drawings and pieced together a first draft of the story. This novella would be worked into the final draft of the screenplay. So cool. Yeah, so at this point, I don't believe Brian Froud had a child. No, he did not. But he did have end up having a child, named him Toby, and that child happened to look just like the kid in the picture. Yeah. So they were like, hey, that's the kid we're going to use for the movie. And it was perfect. Bit weird. A little strange a that bit he faded. Yeah, a little strange how he knew exactly how his future job was going to look. <laughs> but uh, yeah. Well, you know, he just made one of those mashups of him and his wife. Right? Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Like... He he went on the Facebook. <laughs> he and... used to filter. Yeah. <laughs> you know, listening to the audio commentary when they showed him in the crib, Toby yeah. in the crib, and you could hear Brian Froud be so like proud, and he was like, "Yeah, oh look at him, that's my baby." It was so mm-hmm. sweet. As Lee worked on his draft, Jim Henson searched for a screenwriter. He wanted a comedian and decided to go with Terry Jones, one of the frontmen of the famed troupe Monty Python. Jones wasn't just a comedian. He was also a fan of mythology and co-wrote the famous film Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Jim Henson wrote to Jones, telling him that his contributions would make the script jump to life. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. That's why the movie's funny. Yes. I think it's cool that he prioritized it being funny and specifically sought out a comedian. It probably didn't take him much convincing. Yeah. 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 Dennis Lee provided Jones with a poetic treatment about 90 pages long, and Brian Froud handed him notebooks of concept art. Jones used these references to write his script, but was mostly inspired by Froud's art. Jones said, Every time I came to a new scene, I looked through Brian's drawings, and found a character who was kind of speaking to me already. And suddenly there was a scene. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, one of those characters was the little worm. Oh, you're a worm, aren't you? Yeah, shot! You don't by any chance know the way through this labyrinth, do you? Oh, me? Nah, I'm just a worm. <laughs> oh. Come inside and meet the missus. Hello! Did you just say hello? I said hello, but close, close enough. enough. <laughs> <laughs> I love, I mean, yes. Perfect. Adorable. Yeah. They they gave him a little scarf so that he would look British, and yeah. oh my god! And that and that reaction is is straight out of Monty Python. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I said hello, but not close enough. That's, yeah. a, that's ex- straight out of a sketch. So yeah, that was one of those characters that he yeah. saw in the corner of a page, and was like, "This character needs to be in the movie." Yeah. This one speaks to me. Yeah. <laughs> Jones was absolutely taken with Froud's art and Henson's ability to make these creations come to life. While filming, he would not call the creatures puppets. He referred to them as some other form of magic. So cool. I mean, yeah. When you watch this movie, these these things are much more than just your standard puppets. Yeah. I mean, you look at a Muppet, it's got the flappy mouth and the, mm-hmm. the unmoving eyes and the wiggly arms and stuff. And that's very classic and charming. Yeah. But these are like, they, they're straight up 
creatures. Like, yeah. you know, to the level of like a Stan Winston animatronic kind of thing akin to Jurassic Park. You know, it's like, it's alive. Yeah. Yeah. Jennifer Connelly, who played Sarah, said that she, it was so weird for her because <laughs> yeah. she just felt like she wasn't talking to a puppet. She felt like she was yeah. talking to a living creature that she had just never met mm-hmm. before. You know, these yeah. these just seemed so alive to her. I mean, yeah. especially Hoggle. You get such good acting out yeah. of that. Mm-hmm. And, and yes. you, you bounce off of it. You can't improvise with a with a tennis ball. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's all that CG junk yeah. today. Yeah. yeah, I think that was something that Brian Froud felt was very helped a lot with this movie being able to play off of each other and the fact that the characters were seeing what the audience was going to see Mm -hmm. really helped them with their performances yeah yeah jones's first draft went to another writer for revisions and then another writer after that oh boy the script went through almost 25 revisions over a (sighs) two-year period oh my god wow yeah one of these writers was elaine may who was brought on to polish the script in 1985. Her revisions humanized the characters, especially the lead role of Sarah. Jim Henson loved May's contribution so much, he decided to start shooting after her edits had been made. Wow. Booyah. And it was funny because when we were doing this research, Marcy asked me, well, who were the screenwriters? Because I'm seeing lots of names here. <laughs> yeah. And I, I was reading the book, and the book said... There's this murky cloud of people who wrote this movie that, <laughs> yeah. that just don't get credited. And uh, I, I, okay, okay, that's why. All right. <laughs> so the, yeah. The dang screenplay is a, is a labyrinth in itself. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> As the concept designer, Brian Froud was responsible for the overall look of the film and its characters. Each puppet was built from his designs, but Froud did not fully develop the characters because he felt that it would dampen the creative process. He wanted the creatures to develop beyond the page and for the designers to have happy accidents in their creation. Froud also helped design the costumes in the film. He worked closely with costume designer Ellis Flight to further develop a complex fantasy world. They decided to dress the baby Toby in a white and red striped onesie so that he would stand out in every scene. They had to invent a slimmed-down version of his diaper to make the costume look right, but this new version couldn't hold in a lot of mess when he had an accident. Oh, yeah. No. I guess oh, man. when they started filming Magic Dance, yes. he had a little mess on David Bowie. Oh, no. <laughs> which it, like, shut down shooting. Yeah, which they referred to, Brian Froud said they referred to him as Uncle Davey for the rest of their lives. Oh, yes, which is so cute. That's adorable. Yeah. They also had to make their own striped outfits to make them exactly the same mm. because when they tried to buy them from somewhere, the stripes were all different or like just slightly off which would not be good for continuity sarah's costume was designed to be timeless the top is modeled after old-fashioned peasant tops paired with contemporary jeans the costumes were all meant to reflect several different eras and types of folklore so the audience could apply the story to any time yeah i had a top like the one she's wearing yeah 
And I definitely, I grew up in a different time than she did. Mm-hmm. It so, worked perfect. Yeah. 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 So, I mean. I think she had a, a vest on at one point, which looked very 90s. Yeah. And-, and everyone knows that the article of clothing that has no time period at all is yeah. jeans. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Because yeah. you could wear jeans in the year 3000, and everybody'd <laughs> yeah. be like, mm, all right. Yeah. 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 I mean, well, we all know that in the year 3000, nothing has changed. Oh, yeah. Except we live underwater. Water. Oh, yeah. But I mean, the jeans are waterproof. <laughs> yeah, so. that's true. How's your great grand, grand, grand granddaughter do? <laughs> doing? Fine, actually. Cool. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for asking. Oh, I haven't heard that song in so long. <laughs> I know. But yeah, you guys remember, you the, remember the words so Damn well. It. Damn it. Jareth, the Goblin King, has several costume changes. His look changes as the film progresses, showing the feelings of the character in each scene. He is meant to look almost like a medieval knight and a romantic lead. His hair was designed to be wolf-like, as wolves are often villains in many fairy tales. But there were also influences from Japanese theater in his design. At one point in the film, he wears some armor. In another, he wears all white, to signify that he had lost his power. Jareth also carried around a swagger stick that also acted as a microphone. Yeah. Very nice. Yeah, he's <laughs> like this nice, cool prop <laughs> that he just kind of dances around with and taps stuff. And, yeah. You know. Maybe... Maybe that's why I like him too, because Maleficent had a, oh, a maybe. swagger stick. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> there you go. You might like him because he's David Bowie. But that too. Yeah. Most I was, definitely. I was just I gonna say <laughs> Yeah. It's the perfect way to do a character that that David Bowie is playing. Like yeah. the <laughs> yeah. outfit changes all the time. It, <laughs> yes. but yet it's very flamboyant no matter what. And the mm-hmm. hair is just mm, it's <laughs> yeah. perfect. Just, it's just out there and it's beautiful. In this film, the labyrinth itself is a character. Elliot Scott was the set designer tasked with creating both the complex world of the Goblin King to Sarah's American bedroom. The film needed to feel like a true voyage and had to include several different unique spaces. Scott's designs really helped convey that. It, it's, it was a great move for a movie like this because... One, it gives you those opportunities to have those ridiculous characters that they, yeah. you know, uh-huh. creativity mm-hmm. all over the place. But you, you can imagine a movie taking place in a labyrinth or a maze where it's literally just walls. It's like, which way do you go? And it's just a maze. You know, maybe it's some cracks in the wall and you have a worm character show up or whatever. But in this way, it's like you can feel the progression even though you don't really know which way to go still, because it's an obvious, ridiculous maze. Yeah. But you have those moments to be like, okay, something new, <laughs> you know, and it it just helps helps you move along without, you know, keep showing the castle get closer yeah. or something like yeah. that. You know, without the creatures, it, it's this very kind of ominous, mm-hmm. kind of heavy place. Yeah. And so, yeah, the the design of the sets are <laughs> amazing. Scott was a gifted production designer that also created the worlds of Indiana Jones and Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Hey, nice. Wow. Yeah. yeah. No wonder he did a great job. Yeah. <laughs> the choreographers were Cheryl McFadden and Charles Augins. They got Charles Augins to help choreograph scenes such as Dance Magic Dance. 
They wanted the energetic movements that Charles choreographed so well. Mm-hmm. You know, you when yes. you have all of these people and mm-hmm. creatures, and you gotta, you better believe that everyone's got a mark, and everybody, <laughs> yeah, everybody needs to be in a specific oh, yeah. sp- spot, and they, yeah. you know, so you have everything has to be choreographed, oh, every yes. movement, mm-hmm. step, mm-hmm. walk, mm-hmm. all of it. Yes. The Labyrinth was another groundbreaking film with several complex characters and sequences. Let's talk about some of the most impressive accomplishments of the film. We'll start with Hoggle, who's an incredibly important character in the film, as he acts as Sarah's reluctant friend and guide through the labyrinth. The Hoggle puppet was considered to be the most complicated puppet ever created. He was performed by a total of five people, operating 18 different motors. One person was inside a suit. Sherry Weiser, and four people on the outside controlling the mechanical head. The performers were together all the time during filming because it was important they remained in sync with each other. After doing the character for so many months, Brian Henson and the other puppeteers were almost able to improvise, which is unusual for a puppet of this complexity. It was kind of like this with The Gump and Return to Oz, and it's kind of a little bit like this with the luck dragon and the never ending story. Not nearly on this level. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it, it, where you have a bunch of people operating something and, and mm-hmm. it's kind of like you had one person operating half of the jaw. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like this person can make ooh movements with the mouth. Yeah. And this person can make ah movements with the. Well, you know, it's, yeah. it's right. a, lot of, <laughs> a lot of work. Yeah. <laughs> Sherry Weiser couldn't see outside the suit and needed a monitor and camera. She apparently hated the system, and the camera in the chest was eventually removed. This meant that she could only see out when Hoggle's mouth was open. Brian Henson had to come up with reasons to open the puppet's mouth when Sherry was about to run into things. He would often let out loud grunts and scoffs so she could see what was ahead of her. This became part of Hoggle's character and charm. <laughs> it really did. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's amazing to think that a character like this wasn't originally such a grump <laughs> like he is, but because they had to ha! open the mouth as much as possible, yeah. <laughs> that he became that. The, yeah, the camera was like right in the middle of the chest of Hoggle. I bet it was super uncomfortable inside. Yeah. yeah. You can imagine like wires and stuff and mm-hmm. the monitor probably was right up in her face. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, Could well, I get it. You know, I yeah. can't hardly act. Yeah. Because she mm-hmm. still had to do all of the hand movements yeah. and stuff. It's not like yes. she was just in there holding yeah. the monitor. Yeah. So I can't, I don't blame her for getting I mean, that out of here. <laughs> they had her climbing ladders yeah. and doing yeah. all kinds. You know, that I think those were some of the most dangerous stunts in the movie were mm-hmm. yeah. her with Hoggle's hands trying to climb up a ladder. Yeah. It's amazing. It's yeah. Hoggle is so alive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Brian also performed the voice with the intention that his father was going to replace it. But by the end of filming, Jim said he was keeping Brian's voice in. Aww. (laughs) And if you listen, it sounds a little bit like the dog's voice in the storyteller, but... Oh, nobody's going to tell you that secret. (laughs) (laughs) Brian said that he never felt closer to his dad than when they worked on the labyrinth together. Yeah. Wow. As Sarah makes her way through the labyrinth, she falls into a shaft of green arthritic hands. 
Terry Jones first came up with the concept of the hands, and Jim Henson called the scene bizarre and unusual. Yeah. <laughs> it is bizarre and unusual. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Yeah. What do you mean, help? We are helping. We are helping hands. You're hurting. Would you like us to let go? (laughs) Jennifer Connelly described scenes like this as a personal amusement park where she got to experience all of these cool rides, even though she was very ticklish. (laughs) I imagine it was really hard not to laugh. Yeah. The shaft was 30 feet deep, filled with 150 pairs of foam latex hands, operated by 75 different puppeteers. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so, like, a little bit, like, about 100 of them or so were rubber hands. Yeah, they'll just flop around. <laughs> and then the rest were, like, had, were foam latex, but had people's hands in oh, them. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> in order to make this scene, they lined everyone up behind boards that were slightly diagonal. So the hands would show while the faces would stay hidden. <laughs> so you, you kind of pull this back and you just mm-hmm. see a bunch of people just kind of leaning on boards, <laughs> you know, with their arms just yeah. inside. I like to think that they couldn't see her coming and her hand is just in there like, okay, yeah. act a little weird and creepy. And then she comes by, oh, it's my part of it. Right <laughs> gotcha, yeah, gotcha. And then she's passed. It's like, ah, I did great. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, they really couldn't. I believe Brian said that it was really difficult because they'd be like, okay, the one near her, do this. And, yeah. And yes. they would be like, wait, who? Who is that? Yeah, the directing was impossible. Yeah. Jim Henson came up with the idea of the hands making faces to speak. He and some other puppeteers spent hours in front of mirrors trying to create different ways to imitate faces with hands. It's perfect. It's such a good idea. Yeah. And at the end of this, apparently, when they finished shooting, each side took turns applauding for the other side. Oh, the left side oh, applauded for their hands for the right. That's great. Yeah. I want that video. <laughs> I know. Another memorable piece of the labyrinth was the bog of eternal stench. <laughs> you could already tell. We used to look at my mom's chili and say that it looked like the bog <laughs> of eternal stench. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Brian Froud was critical of this scene, thinking that the humor was too childish to be in the film. However, Prince Charles reportedly loved the bog of eternal stench, being the only one to laugh at it during the royal premiere of the film. Yep. That's great. (laughs) I bet you everybody else was just too nervous to laugh. Yeah, they're all like, oh, potty humor. Yay. In front of uh, Prince Charles. (laughs) He's just laughing. uh... We can all admit that sometimes it's pretty funny. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if it's done correctly. It's yes, all, it's exactly. All, yeah. It's all about timing and, like, clever. <laughs> yes. The water in the bog stayed stagnant long enough that it really was quite smelly. They had a stunt double stand in for Jennifer Connelly, so there was no danger of her falling into the gross water. Yeah. It probably wasn't as smelly as we imagined it to be, but it was pretty bad. Yeah, yeah. if you've ever had to like dump out a bucket that's been sitting for too long, you yeah. kind of know it's like yes. a fish. Yeah, yeah. or if you've ever dropped a golf ball at a, at a mini golf. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, then you have to get it out. In the water, and you got to get it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In Jim Henson's original notes, he wanted a giant that came out of the wall. It was one of the few original elements that made it into the final cut of the film. 
During the battle sequence in the final act, a huge monster comes forth from the wall operated by goblins. Brian really fought against the idea of a giant monster, so he ended up making the creature come out of the door, because he did not want a straightforward puppet. He also designed it to look like goblins were operating him, so it was this incredibly advanced looking technology, but in a very disarming and old way. It's just like the when they're in the tun they're they're stuck in the tunnel and that big machine is coming toward them. Mm-hmm. And when the machine finally comes past, it's just two goblins just, <laughs> just riding up and down, <laughs> yeah. operating it, yeah. making it very silly, very disarming. <laughs> mm-hmm. The monster was gigantic and mechanical, one of the biggest puppets ever created. It was operated remotely. The machine was real and could cause problems if not operated properly. Polyurethane foam was used and painted to look like armor with the entire project taking two to three months to build. Wow. Oh boy. Yes. One character. <laughs> yeah, all of the metal, quote-unquote metal, if any character is yeah. a machine or if they have armor on, none of that is metal. It is all no. foam Yes. or any kind of plastic yes. painted to look like metal. Yes. It looks amazing. Real, real metal would have cost a buttload more. Yeah. Yes. It would have taken yeah. a lot more time to make, mm-hmm. and it would have been heavy. Yes. <laughs> this, this character was already so, so heavy. Yeah. Yes. The door knockers at some point in the movie, you know, mm-hmm. there's door knockers, one who has a, he has a ring in his mouth and one has a ring in his ears. Mm-hmm. Those both look so good. They look like really heavy metal. Yeah. Yes, but they then they do. move their faces, and it's really just because it was really soft foam. Yeah. It just yeah. looked like metal. Mm-hmm. Jim Henson knew that a climactic battle sequence would be the best way to get his characters to the doors of the Goblin King's castle. The scene was not meant to be overly violent, as the Goblin army is a hapless group, barely able to get their own weapons to work. One of these goblins was Star Wars actor Kenny Baker. In his sequence, a cannon doesn't fire properly, causing his real-life costume to catch fire. Oh my gosh. Something that he remembered forever, apparently. Oh. I guess at some point, Brian Froud spotted him at an airplane terminal or, you know, uh-huh. and he sat next to him and he said, you know, hey, you were in one of my movies. And Kenny Baker was like, you're going to have to remind me which one it was. <laughs> and he said, the labyrinth? And he goes, did you set fire to me? And he goes, oh, no, no, I didn't do that. <laughs> that wasn't me. I mean, that would be something you wouldn't forget. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that one movie where I caught fire, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that one. The Goblin Army is painted many different bright colors, red, green, orange, and blue. They also have numbers on their heads. This design was actually inspired by Thomas the Tank Engine characters. Oh, nice. Yeah. Dude, everybody go watch it. At least the original Shining Time Station is pretty, pretty yeah. great. Many of the goblins in this sequence are puppeteers in suits. They wanted every aspect of puppetry to be present, from suits to mechanisms to hand operation. Like the rest of the film, the scene was incredibly complex. You know, the further we go into this and the more scenes we talk about, I realize that, dang, this movie is like, just like the physical act of making it is about as wild as the movie itself when you watch it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, moving on a little bit, this movie is kind of a musical, too. Yeah. Jim Henson knew from the very beginning that he wanted a big star attached to the project. His son, John, was a big fan of David Bowie, and Henson noticed a certain otherworldliness 
to the entertainer. Bowie was immediately intrigued by the idea and wanted to be able to write songs for the film that would appeal to all audiences. It was a perfect match. Yeah. He gave Bowie the script, and he gave him a tape of The Dark Crystal. Mm -hmm. And he watched The Dark Crystal, and he said, Oh, this could be amazing. I want to be in this movie. And then he read the script, and he said the script was just so entertaining. Yeah. He just, I thought, oh my God, yes, I've got to do this. I've got to do it. (laughs) The film's score was written by Trevor Jones with music and lyrics by David Bowie. Yeah. Yeah. I had the soundtrack on CD. I got it for my 11th birthday, and I listened to it on the school bus every day when I was in sixth grade. (laughs) I remember listening to parts of it, like watching snow fall and stuff, the instrumental parts. It was a beautiful score, and just the songs were so good. Mm -hmm. There there are quite a few movies that do this for me, but this is one one example where the score just is the sound of magic. Yeah. You know, obviously the David Bowie songs are freaking great. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But like this score of just the the accompanying music just feels so magical fantasy. And I like that visual you said where you could listen to it while watching Snowfall Mm -hmm. because snow feels like magic too. Yeah. Yeah. It's just perfect. (laughs) So the first one here we're going to talk about is the opening slash underground. The film opens with an owl created by Industrial Light and Magic. Hey, George George Lucas was a producer on this movie. Yes. It was one of the first fully CG creatures to appear in film at the time and looks a little dated now. The owl signifies the night and eventually turns out to be the Goblin King in disguise. Mm. Underground was the title track for the film, recorded in the Atlantic Studios in New York City around 2 in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds fun. They were working hard, that's for sure. Yeah. The opening leads us to Sarah as she acts out a scene in the park with her dog. We're soon introduced to her home and bedroom filled with influences for the story that will soon unfold. She's doing this thing in the park at the beginning. It's really interesting. She's reciting a play. A play that we soon learn is called The Labyrinth. It's the book. She's holding yeah. the book later, and it has the name The Labyrinth hey. on it. So the other song, the next song we'll talk about, is probably my favorite song in this movie. It's, yeah. it's up there, man. And it's, it's just so fun to yes. sing and dance to, and I sing this song all the time to my cats. <laughs> I tell them, you remind me of the babe. And then I point to my husband, and he's supposed to say, what babe? But he never does. <laughs> he never does. <laughs> he never does. And I I just have to yep. sing the whole thing yep. to myself. Unless Aww. I'm here, yeah. then I sing it. Yeah, you remind me of the babe. <laughs> what babe? The babe with the power. What power? The power of voodoo. Voodoo. You do. Do what? Remind me of the babe. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. This song is called uh, the Dance Magic Dance, or just yes. Magic Dance. Sarah, being upset that she has to babysit, wishes for the Goblin King to come and take Toby away. Presumably an idea she got from the book she was reading in the park earlier. Yeah. The goblins come. They take the baby. She has 13 hours to enter a labyrinth and find her way to the Goblin King's palace and steal Toby back. As Sarah has entered the labyrinth and makes her way toward the center... We see she is being watched by the cocky and spoiled Goblin King from his hall filled with goblins. 
Then Jareth sings an upbeat song with the baby, doing twirls and his more casual costume. It's probably the most casual one he wears yeah, in the show. Yeah, I agree. David Bowie had trouble recording the song because the baby in the studio wouldn't make any noise. The baby sounds on the track were made by David Bowie. Oh, my gosh. Oh. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Come on, baby. The one time we need you to make noise, you're yeah. quiet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, that was pretty much what he said. Yeah. yeah. This scene was one of the first ones filmed. The set had to have several holes within the walls to accommodate and hide the puppeteers. Brian Henson said that the set looked like Swiss cheese. They were almost worried it would fall apart. Oh, boy. <laughs> In addition to the puppets, there were actors that were on wires jumping around to bring more motion. Oh, my gosh. Man, <laughs> so complicated every time. Yep. Yep. It's continuous to get more and more complex. <laughs> the song represents the carefree nature of the Goblin King and his disregard for what he's done. It also shows off the silliness of the goblins, characters that try to be evil but just can't seem to pull it off. Yeah, it, it's like he's ruling them, but like mm-hmm. doesn't give a crap what they do. Yeah, yeah. It's just like it's a party all the time, mm-hmm. almost. <laughs> yeah, but but it somehow is supposed to be a kingdom still. Yeah, it's like know? he's kind of inherited this kingdom. Yeah. he's got to rule these goblins. Yeah, and... yeah. When asked about Jareth, Bowie said, "I think Jareth at best is a romantic, but at worst he's a spoiled child, vain and temperamental." Kind of like a rock and roll star. Ah, <laughs> some, some great self-deprecating humor there, yeah. David. The next song we're going to talk about is one that I think always confused me. It is Chili Down. <laughs> During Sarah's journey, she encounters a group of fireys. These are brightly colored bird-like creatures that live in the forest. At first, she is disarmed by their free-spirited song and dance. But the scene quickly turns dangerous when they want to see if she can remove her head the way the fireys can remove theirs. Oh, dear. Mm, yeah. Uh-oh. During this scene, there are several fiery characters that dance around, bounce their heads, and remove their hands. These characters were modeled directly after drawings by Brian Froud. Even in the drawings, their movements were wacky and strange. The team decided to take this and bring it on screen. The rehearsals with these characters informed them a lot. A lot of experimentation was done, and each time it changed the configurations and movement of the characters. Yeah, and they said these rehearsals were also very fun. Oh, I bet. Yeah, they had a really good time laughing and joking around. (laughs) (laughs) Since the fireys were able to unattach their heads, multiple puppeteers were used to create one fiery. The characters were shot on black velvet, with the puppeteers covered from head to toe in black velvet as well. The characters are brightly colored so that they stand out against the black screen. They were meant to look like traditional Muppets. The whole thing of just hiding in plain sight is really cool. Visual keys were done to match the lyrics. One example, when they say, I shake my pretty little head, their heads are removed and bounce around. And this was the first song recorded by David Bowie for the film. Nice. Way to start out weird. Yeah. (laughs) The next song is As the World Falls Down. So Sarah meets Hoggle, and they kind of become friends. And Hoggle is working with Jareth, even though he doesn't want to. But Jareth's the king. Mm -hmm. Jareth does not want Sarah to be successful. He's kind of taken with her, actually, and he would like it if she stayed. 
yeah. in the labyrinth. And so he is kind of trying to manipulate her and convince her to forget her mission. So he gives Hoggle a peach to give to Sarah, which he does. Yes. And that's what happens in this, in this song as the world falls down. After Jareth convinces Hoggle to give Sarah a poisoned peach, she finds herself at a costume ball. This scene is absolutely vital in showing Sarah's progression from a sulky teenager to a young adult. It's an abrupt transformation as she's transported from her regular clothes to a beautiful ball gown and surrounded by confusing and unfamiliar faces. She gravitates to the only face she recognizes, Jareth, and the two engage in an almost trance-like dance. The scene meant a lot to Jim Henson personally because he was able to apply his own emotions as a father of teenage girls, watching them mature into adulthood. Mm. Even the metaphor of the peach, even the yes. visual of the peach, they specifically chose one. They could have chosen any fruit. Yeah, yeah. any. Well, I mean, like probably an like apple. an apple. Or, yeah. yeah. For this scene, the filmmakers tried to create an adult world that Sarah would be simultaneously attracted to and repulsed by because she's in that stage between childhood and adulthood. This adult world was inspired by Venice and is set vaguely in the 18th century. The entire set was supposed to seem as if it existed in a bubble preserved from the rest of the world. They took 10 days on the scene and ended up needing more people to fill the room. This caused the costume department to scramble for several more costumes in just a few days. Although Sarah's character is becoming an adult, Jennifer's parents were worried about her growing up too much in the scene, so the hairdressers were sure to make her hair not seem too adult. They simplified her design and gave her natural references in her hair. Leaves and gold. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Jim Henson asked Bowie to write a more traditional song for the scene, and Bowie felt that it was the prettiest and most relaxed tune in the film. Absolutely. Yeah. The next song we have is Within You. With the help of her friends, Hoggle, Ludo, and Sir Didymus, Sarah finally reaches the center of the labyrinth and must face the Goblin King. As she heads inside, she turns to her friends and tells them that she must face him on her own. The scene was meant to drive home Sarah's maturity, but also paid homage to the classic fairy tale, Our Hero's Journey as our hero must face their final battle alone. It's a nice little moment because it shows that Sarah really understands her situation and what she's in. Yeah. She's really recognized that this is kind of like a fairy tale. Mm -hmm. And she's like, oh, at this point in the story, I got to do this by myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sarah's friends have grown with her, an idea that Jim Henson especially liked. He loved the concept that we were all connected and had a responsibility to each other. Sarah must now chase down her brother through a complicated mess of staircases, inspired by an M.C. Escher painting. For this scene, the crew built a complicated set that seemed to defy logic, one that really made you question what was up or what was down. Yeah, even just the footage of the set, you're kind of like, whoa. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's complicated. The lighting and oh, yes. geez, everything was on point. Yeah, it just makes yeah. your head hurt looking at it. <laughs> Jim Henson wanted the stairs as a way to depict the meeting of real danger and the surreal nature of Sarah's imagination. The story is never clear as to whether or not all of this happens in Sarah's mind. And this scene illustrates that completely. 
For the scene, Jim Henson wanted to put baby Toby up on a tower, but Brian Froud and his wife were too scared to let them shoot it. Both of them were afraid of heights, and they did not want their baby so high. Uh, <laughs> I understand I don't it. blame them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although it looks like Toby is lost in the complex riddle of stairs, he was actually just climbing up on one or two steps off the floor the entire time. Family members stood around, calling his name and playing music to get him to look and crawl in certain directions. <laughs> this song was David Bowie's personal favorite from the film. He said, I had to write something that sounded like stone walls and crumbling power. And the all-over effect with Jim's visuals is, I think, very tragic and slightly disturbing. Yes. She is trapped here. Yeah. It's what it really seems like. Yeah. And he's kind of looming around. There's this mm -hmm. great moment where they had the stunt double with his foot essentially glued to the bottom of the stone wall and he flips up yeah. from the bottom. Yeah, he's a little Dracula-esque here. Yeah. And I think he's a little Dracula in, in lots of parts of the movie, but there's this very, like, scary romantic thing here going on yeah and the lyrics do it perfectly it's like i did all this for you yeah like mm -hmm. what do i get like exactly you're, you're treating me like crap and i, I, did I all moved this the for world you. for no one yeah <laughs> so guys sarah gets out of that oh spoilers <laughs> i know i know i know <laughs> in the final sequence that sarah shares with jareth he's dressed in white he looks pale compared to his other moments like he's lost his power. He looks this way because he knows that he's already lost, that Sarah has all the power. He pleads with her because he really is smitten with her and how strong she has proven herself to be. Jareth is lonely. The only companions in his life are those that he controls. But Sarah would be different because Sarah has the power to leave, even if she doesn't realize it until this moment. At the beginning of the film, Sarah was memorizing the lines from a play. She couldn't remember the final lines, and she struggles to recall them now. She ignores Jareth, and a look of realization crosses her face. She remembers something she knew all along, a fact that seems so obvious to her now, if only she had remembered it sooner. She looks at Jareth and says, You have no power over me. Boom, got it. It's just, a, her delivery is incredible. Yeah. You have no power over me. You have no power over me. She's realizing it as she says it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's just a, a it's such a powerful statement. Yeah. It's incredibly strong and it's a wonderful thing for girls to hear. Yeah. Watching the chills. movie. Yeah, it really does. It gives you chills, but she says it like it's such a, oh my God. <laughs> how did I not see this before? Yeah. Oh my God. I, how did I not know this? Yeah. How did you know? I not remember this? How am I just now hearing? How am I just now realizing that I have the power? The words are enough to destroy Jareth's hold on Sarah, as words were the thing that gave Jareth any power at all in the beginning of the film. If you guys remember, the only reason he was able to take Toby away yeah. is because she asked him to. Yes. Mm -hmm. Sarah didn't earn or fight for her power. It was always there. Oh, man. Yay. Yep. Yes. The force is in us all. <laughs> <laughs> this was Bowie's favorite scene to shoot. He said, it's so sad, I think. 
because Sarah really likes Jareth, but she must get her baby brother Toby back safely. So she has to reject all of Jareth's pleas for companionship in his pretty lonely world. It it is sad, but at the same time, you could like be nicer. (laughs) There's a lot of there's a lot of people in the labyrinth. Like he doesn't know how else to get her to stay, Mm -hmm. besides to trick her and manipulate her and scare her, and all of that is wrong. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't know it. Because he's the villain, you know. Yeah. The villains are heroes of their own story, and this is a very classic fairy tale villain. Like you said, he kind of did what he was told. Yeah. You know, yeah. she asked him to take Toby, and he did. And it's like, well, I didn't do anything wrong. Yeah. So yeah. he's just like, that's, you know, he doesn't see himself as the villain at all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. After Sarah returns to her room, she sees her friends in the mirror. They tell her their heartfelt goodbyes, and Sarah tearfully tells them that she needs them. Then the characters all appear, goblins and fireys alike, to dance together. Brian Froud disliked this scene. He felt it was unnecessary and cheapened the ending of the film. But he said he was happy to be proven wrong, as many people liked the addition. Underground then plays and the credits begin to roll. I hear, I heard him say that and I said, you know what, I actually do agree with you. I understand why he thinks the scene is kind of yeah. unnecessary and yeah. kind of... A little gaudy. Out of place. Yeah. Yeah. But you know what? I, as a kid, I loved the scene Mm -hmm. because it it was this kind of sad ending. Mm -hmm. She's away from all these characters that we love now. She's totally back in her room. And it's this very bittersweet feeling like, oh, I'm home again. She's putting away all her childish stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like the Wizard of Oz, too, because she, Dorothy comes back. Yeah, and, and I feel like she misses all the people in Oz, hence why there's, you know, return to Oz. Yeah, yeah. It's cool that she has this little scene. It's a, like she's holding on to childhood a little bit longer, yeah. you know. She <laughs> they don't have to go away for good. Mhm. All right. So now that we've got all the story laid out and you know everything that happened, we're going to talk about who starred in it. Jennifer Connelly played Sarah. Jennifer Connelly began as a model before acting. She was not sure what she wanted to be when she grew up, maybe a vet or a carpenter, but she kind of fell into acting. Oh, that must be nice. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Since this movie, she has been in several things, such as Requiem for a Dream, A Beautiful Mind, and Spider-Man Homecoming. It was the first time Jennifer was ever in England, and she said the whole experience was fun for her. Jim Henson was very supportive and very kind to her. He did not have to talk down to her or tiptoe around her feelings, and many members of the team remarked how mature and professional she was at the young age of 14. Jim Henson said, I wanted a girl who looked and behaved in that kind of dawn-twilight time between childhood and womanhood. And Jennifer was perfect in that part. Nice. So a lot of people actually tried out for this part of Sarah. And I just wanted to mention a few of them. Yeah. uh, Helena Bonham Carter auditioned. Wow. She was actually like almost cast in the role. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Jane Krakowski, Yasmin Bleeth, Sarah Jessica Parker, uh, Laura Dern. Wow. Uh, yes. So many. Yeah. Ali Sheedy and Mia Sarah. I mean, just uh, all lots wow. of people. Just... Holy cow. Wow. Yeah. Everyone wants to do a Jim Henson thing. Man. Yeah. It's yeah. just. 
<laughs> yeah. It had nothing to do with David Bowie. <laughs> Speaking of David Bowie, he, of course, played Jareth. Bowie, of course, was a singer-songwriter that would also appear in movies. Some of these were UHF, The Prestige, and Twin Peaks' Fire Walk With Me. Also, Michael Motion was the amazing performer behind David Bowie, juggling the balls. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh. <laughs> so those are not his arms. <laughs> no, surprisingly. This poor guy was working blind behind Bowie, and so every time they had to do several takes. <laughs> <laughs> Remember in the footage, they did this great thing where they cut David Bowie talking about it over top of the footage. So David Bowie was saying, oh, yeah, he would drop the ball, and and every time I found it kind of amusing, but poor Michael, I, I don't think he did. And you could <laughs> oh, see like him guy. drop it. He looks no. so uncomfortable and so angry. And David Bowie's like smirking there in front of him. No. Next, we have Toby Froud as Toby. Yay. <laughs> and we talked about this earlier, but Toby is actually Brian Froud's son. And he was influenced by what his father did and things like this movie. So he is now a special effects designer, puppeteer, filmmaker, and performer. Yep. That's nice. So cool. Little Toby. I grew want... up to be a goblin after all. <laughs> <laughs> Shelly Thompson was the stepmother. Shelly is most known for her character in Trailer Park Boys as Barbara Leahy. Christopher Malcolm was the father. He was in things like Highlander, Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back, and Never Say Never Again. Sherry Weiser as Hoggle. Sherry was often a suit performer and was in Babes in Toyland from 1986. Follow That Bird, and Mr. Willoughby's Christmas Tree. Brian Henson, of course, also assisted with Hoggle and his voice. He was also a goblin voice. He was in his 20s when this movie was made, as we talked about, and he has continued on his father's legacy and is an amazing puppeteer, director, and technician in his own right. Next, we have Ron Muick as Ludo, one of the two that would switch on and off in the costume. He was also Fiery 2 and some more Goblin voices. <laughs> he is an amazing sculptor. His sculptures are very lifelike and have a huge scale. He also voiced the character in The Tale of the Bunny Picnic. Aww. We also have Rob Mills as the other Ludo and Fiery number 3. He worked for 12 years with Jim Henson's puppet studio and even started a couple of his own production companies. Can you cool. imagine it's Ron and Rob switching yeah. off <laughs> in this suit? I feel yeah. like there was a lot of confusion. Uh, I imagine. Ron Muick was the main actor within Ludo, but since it is such a heavy and difficult character, Rob Mills would sometimes take over. These actors would control Ludo by using one arm to move his head around and one arm to control one of the other arms. Ludo's second arm hung by itself. Inside with the puppeteer, whether it be Ron or Rob, were two video screens strapped in so they could see what the camera was filming and where they were heading. So unlike Hoggle, they were okay with the cameras. Yeah. <laughs> For a little extra visibility, there was also mesh that they could see through hidden in fur on Ludo's chest. There were two Ludo heads, one that had a smile and one that had a frown. Both of these heads were animatronic, like Hoggles, and required three people to control. 
The three people that contributed to this were Francis Wright, Sue Dacre, and Donald Austin. Yeah, so if you if you look at Ludo, you'll notice that he's always got one arm just hanging. Yeah. Right. Yep. yep. When I read this, I was like, oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. Thinking back, I was like, I what? I, 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 I never even that, noticed. But like, I didn't yeah. think about it. Like, yeah. It's like Big Bird. Big Bird has one arm like up like yeah. on his yeah. belly almost all the time. And all he only time. ever gestures with one hand. Yeah. It's the same thing. Jim Henson came up with the idea of Ludo communicating with rocks. He liked the idea of creatures communicating with nature. Yeah. So cool. Ludo's so fun. Dave Goles played Sir Didymus, the Hat, the Four Guards, the Left Door Knocker, and Fiery Three. Wow. Yeah. Oh, he got around. He has a good voice. <laughs> yeah. We mentioned Dave Goles in the last episode as well, and he has been with Jim Henson's company for a long time and has even voiced the new series Muppets Now on Disney+. Plus. Oh, he's still doing Sweet. Gonzo, he's it sounds still like. Doing nice. There were about four different Didymus puppets. Didymus is part fox and part dog in an Elizabethan costume that guards the bridge. The first Didymus was essentially a hand puppet, but a little more complicated. In the left hand of the character is a rod that is used as a prop for Didymus, but is also a clever disguise to assist in control of that arm. Karen Prell aided in controlling the right arm, while Dave Goals controlled the mouth and left arm. From afar, other puppeteers controlled the eyebrows, eyes, and ears. The third was a radio-controlled Didymus that was strapped onto a live sheepdog that was playing Ambrosius. Wow. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Come along, Ambrosius. So, oh, my gosh. Yeah, so Rose cute. Such a cute team. And when so you think cute. about, like, a fox dog sitting on a dog. On a dog. Oh, uh. my goodness. <laughs> the fourth was a Didymus that was connected to a dog-sized puppet where Dave Gold's hand would go up through the dog to get Didymus's mouth. Kevin Clash would then control the movements of Ambrosius. Which Ambrosius is supposed to be the labyrinth version of her dog in her, like, real life. Mm-hmm. And her dog in the real life was Merlin, which apparently Merlin, the wizard from the old King Arthur yes. story, mm-hmm. was sometimes referred to as Merlin Ambrosius. Yeah. So, wow. Yeah. What a reference. They deep. went deep. <laughs> Goes deep. All right. So let's talk about how well this movie was received. Obviously, the three of us here like it very much. Yeah, it was received yes. very well by the Black Case Diaries, and that's yes. all we need to say. And yeah. that's it. All right, uh, moving on. Case closed. <laughs> <laughs> the Labyrinth opened at number eight in the U.S. box office charts with $3.5 million dollars putting it behind other films such as Ferris Bueller's Day Off and Top Gun. Well, those are some hefty competitors. Uh-huh. Yeah. By the end of its run, it had grossed $12.7 million, just over half of its $25 million budget. That is such <sighs> a bummer. Yeah. According to Variety, it also made another $12 million overseas, which would still just fall short of its overall budget. Oh. I can't imagine making a movie this good yeah, and I losing know. money on I it. I yeah. know. That's such a bummer. The people who did see it seemed to really like it. Yeah. The film received mixed to positive reviews from critics. It currently sits, at the time of recording, at 73% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and 86% from audience. So, I mean, the people who see it yeah. tend to like it. Yeah. I like it. The general consensus from critics is that while The Labyrinth is most interesting on a visual level, 
it provides further proof of director Jim Henson's boundless imagination. Oh my gosh. And Brian Froud's imagination, too. Yeah. The Labyrinth was nominated at the British Academy Film Awards for Best Special Visual Effects and received two Saturn Award nominations for Best Fantasy Film as well as Best Costumes. Lastly, it was nominated for the Hugo Award for Best Dramatic Presentation. The film is ranked 72nd on Empire's The 80 Best 80s Movies mm -hmm. and 26th on Time Out's The 50 Best Fantasy Movies. Despite its poor performance at the box office, The Labyrinth was a success on home video and later on DVD, and it has become a cult classic. Brian Henson remembered his father as being aware that The Labyrinth and The Dark Crystal both had cult followings by the time of his death in 1990, saying he was able to see all of that and know that it was appreciated. I'm glad. Yeah. Because I love this movie. Yeah. And it was so important to mm -hmm. all, like, to us. Mm -hmm. He had to have known. When it wasn't successful, he had to have known. You know what? It will be. Yeah. yeah. It, yeah. it will be. Maybe this crowd wasn't ready for it, but mm -hmm. somebody will yeah. be. Yeah. Yep. And that's great that he did get that answer. Yeah. yeah. This movie continues to be a classic beloved by many. In 2017, McFarlane Toys made a special collectible Jareth the Goblin King figurine and in 2019, made a special dance magic Jareth. Oh, I'm yes. sure those are highly sought after. Yes. Oh, yeah. This is such a good movie. It really is. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I am very glad that people do appreciate it. Mm -hmm. And it seemed, like I said, the people who see it like it. So go see it. <laughs> yeah. Please. You're Please. missing out. Watch it, yeah. If you like anything related to Jim Henson, if, you're, if, you, like, if you laughed at a Kermit joke once... <laughs> You're going to like the labyrinth. <laughs> oh, my gosh. There's a scene in this movie. I, I, when my sister came to visit me, Siblings Weekend, in college, they, they were showing this at the, at the theater. Of course, we'd both seen this movie thousands of times. Yeah. But I had forgotten about the scene when they're in this dark kind of cave tunnel, and there's these big heads, and they're like, turn back. <laughs> there's this part where the guy starts saying, go away, turn back, and Hoggle goes, oh, stop it. Oh, shut up. I'm sorry, just doing my job. Well, you don't have to do it to us. Beware, Fuzzer! Just forget it. Oh, please. I haven't said it for such a long time. Oh, all right. But don't expect a big reaction. No, 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 of course not. <clears throat> I forgot how funny that scene was. <laughs> the idea that all of the crazy things in the labyrinth have been waiting... <laughs> For so long for a person to actually come through is hilarious. <laughs> and uh, Terry Jones came up with that joke. And, uh, of <laughs> course. But, yeah. Oh, my gosh. oh, so funny. So good. Much like the name of the film suggests, The Labyrinth takes the audience on a wild and remarkable journey with confusing sequences and strange visuals. Like the classic fairy tales on which it was based, it's a timeless story that can appeal to every generation. This film is rich with visual metaphors, telling a deeply personal story that audiences everywhere can relate to. How is it that this is so personal and yet so wide-reaching at the same time? Mm -hmm. After all, life is a labyrinth. We've all ventured into the twisting walls of the unknown, gathered our friends, lost our way, 
and fought our own Goblin King. To many of us, this film is a guide that reminds us we're all on our own strange and magical journeys. And if ever we should need it, we know where to find it. And also, you've got the power. The no one has any power. You. Yeah, That's no right. one has any yeah. power over you. You have your own power, right? Yes. Don't give do. it up. Yes. And with that, this is the case closed. Yay! Woo! Woo! All right, well, before we go, we'd like to thank our patrons, Joel, John, Jacob, Jacqueline, JD, Anthony, Shelly, Linda, Bob, and Carlos. Thank you, guys. Thank you. thank you so much. You're amazing. Yes. Be sure to go to our website. You can find all of our stuff there, Twitter, Instagram, e- email probably. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Talk to us. Tell us what you think of the yeah. labyrinth. Tell us. You can also always buy us a popcorn at buymeacoffee.com slash blackcasediary. And we just really want to thank you all for your support, whether it be through listening, telling a friend, or donating. Yeah, thank you very much. (laughs) This is... The Black Case Diaries is made possible because... (laughs) Through the generous support. Yeah. Viewers, listeners like you. Thank you. That's right. That's right. (laughs) Goodbye. Bye. See ya. And if ever you should need us... Yeah. Yeah. I can't remember. Did you say something after? I have to face him alone. But why? Yes. Because that's the way it's done. Well, if that is the way it is done, then that is the way you must do it. But should you need us... Yes. Should you need us? I'll call. Thank you. All of you. <laughs>